This morning we're going to be talking about the assurance of salvation, which is why we just sang the last hymn that we did, because we're coming to a particular section of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, that has been the major text, or at least a foundational text, for the Arminian theological position. And one of their tenets is they have a question, they answer that a person could lose God's grace, fall from that, and then lose their salvation. And we want to look at that. Among the major groups that do follow this teaching, the Wesleyans, the Methodists, and the Nazarenes. Now, this is an important doctrine to come to grips with, which is why we're going to be spending some time on it this morning. Our understanding of our security in Christ reflects, actually, our very understanding of salvation itself. And that, in turn, will affect how we live. Now, at the same time, while this is so important, we need to be careful that we don't become so bent out of shape that we see those that would hold this as somehow our adversaries where we're belligerent against them. There can be grace extended on both parts. It's better to be, uh, maybe even have some humor. Down in the South, there's a lot of times when the Methodist and Baptist pastors are very friendly with each other. They're, they're good friends. In fact, my cousin is married to a Methodist minister, and whenever we go down to Mississippi for reunions, we make sure we spend some time with them because we find them to be co-laborers in the gospel. They believe the fundamentals as we do, and we find that we really enjoy being with them, even though we do have some theological disagreements. But it would be better to have a sense of humor like a lot of them do, and there's a lot of Methodist Baptist jokes down there. And one of them actually goes like this. A Methodist was uh, preaching on heaven, and his Baptist friend came in to hear him preach. Methodist saw him and he said, well, if you get there before I do, tell him I'm coming too. The Baptist pastor immediately replied, I can't do it. You might fall from grace and not get there, and I'd be kicked out of heaven for lying. So you can actually be a little bit uh, humorous towards some of these theological differences. But we don't want to become belligerent, though we do want to have a good, solid foundation what we believe, and that it's based right back into Scripture, not into a theological system. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. It says this, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Now, based on these verses, Dutch theologian Jacob Arminius, 1560-1609, taught that believers had to be nourished and encouraged to such a way that they would remain in the saved state. This was his way of dealing with the age-old question of what do you do without those who make a profession of faith and yet they live in sin? What do we do with them? Now his answer is that they were not diligent to make their calling certain and consequently they fell from God's grace and were no longer saved. And so the problem though with this teaching is that it does say something about the nature of salvation. And we need to address that, something I believe is actually contradictory to what Scripture says. Now, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 1.10 in detail here in a minute, but I want to back up this morning first, and let's review what is the basis of salvation. That's what's underlying the question that ends up coming up here. Then we'll look at the verse, and we'll see what the verse is actually talking about in context, rather than reading a theological system into it. Now, both those who follow the teachings of Jacob Arminius and those who follow that of John Calvin, and often they're just called Arminians and Calvinists, it's not the best way to designate people, but it is a handle, and so we often use it. But both groups do believe in the fundamentals of faith. Both theologians did. They believed in the virgin birth. They believed in the Old Testament and New Testament miracles. They believe in Jesus' substitutionary atonement and his bodily resurrection. They believe in the inspiration and fallibility of Scripture. Uh, they believe in the final destinies of either heaven or hell. They believe in justification by God's grace alone through faith. And that faith being defined as that Jesus is God himself in human flesh, just as he claimed, and that he did die as a substitute for our sins, and that he was buried and he rose again on the third day, and he's offering eternal life. That's the faith. They, the theological camps believe the same things on those issues. Those are fundamental issues. Why then such a difference in this understanding of eternal security of the believer? 
when there's agreement in these other areas. Well, essentially it comes down to this. Jacob Arminius stressed man having a free will, while John Calvin stressed God's sovereignty. And both took those premises and then ran with them the opposite directions, ending up with conclusions based on logic rather than what Scripture itself says. Now, it's interesting that Arminius was not Pelagian as a view in that he taught that man does have original sin. Adam's sin affects all of us so that apart from prevenient grace, we can't do any good thing. We cannot save ourselves. He taught that as well. But he also taught that saving grace was not irresistible. He taught that man could resist it and choose against it. And so Arminianism teaches salvation is all the work of God, but man has a choice. The logical outworking is that man could then change his mind later and lose his salvation. That's his theology. When that is read into a text like this, 2 Peter 1.10, then, okay, it makes sense. Man can lose his salvation. That answers this question about what do you do with people who profess faith but don't live for Christ. They lost their salvation. Simply a practical, logical way of dealing with this. Now, the idea that salvation is somehow by our choice is very popular in America. We as a nation have been a people who have historically valued individual choice. And understand with our last elections, we're certainly a people that is changing that view. That a lot of people are looking for someone else to make choices for them. Um, but traditionally, we Americans, we want our own choice. Actually, that's part of the big hot debate over the propon- uh, proposals for health care. Do you get to choose, or does somebody else get to choose for you what happens to you medically? That's what's underlying it. It's a basic premise we have in our nation. Well, in this kind of environment, of this kind of society, we end up with a view that something, a doctrine of election, slips away. It doesn't fit what we like. And so it's very easy to say as well, then I, I get my own choice. I get to do what I want. It's up to me. I'm autonomous. The question is, and is that what Scripture says? Because whatever else we want to believe, we've got to come back to what God has said. Because you can believe anything you want, but if it's not what's in here, you're going to get the end of your life, and then it's going to go, oops. And that's a bad oops. All right? You don't want to get there. You want to make sure you know what the truth is, not what the musings of men are. We don't want to follow theology. We want to follow the Bible. Theology should arise from the Bible, not the theology determining what the Bible says. So let's look at this. Is salvation from sin founded in God's election, or is it in decisional regeneration? Are you saved because of something you did, or is it because of something that God did? Which is it? Let's start by asking a couple questions. First question. What is the spiritual state of someone before they are saved? What is the spiritual state of someone before they are saved? The answer, Ephesians chapter 2. A lot of you are familiar with this section. Verse 1, Ephesians 2, 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Romans chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, adds that we were slaves to sin. In fact, our salvation is remove us from that slavery and make us slaves of righteousness. So, what can a slave choose? What can a dead corpse choose? The answer, nothing. A slave, by definition, is to submit their will to that of their master, They don't get to have their own will. They must have it in submission to the master. What can a corpse do? Not much except sit there and rot. That's it. Corpse can't do anything. It can only decompose. Second question. If a person who was spiritually dead could choose, would they choose to come to God in Jesus Christ? All right? If we grant that a dead person person dead spiritually could choose, would they choose? Well, we get our answers there too. Romans chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12. And if you have these memorized, 
There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That actually comes from Psalm 14. Also, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned aside. Each. John 6.44, Jesus said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. None seek after God. All have gone astray, which is why you can only come to Christ unless the Father draws. The problem is that man is corrupted by sin to such a degree that he's spiritually dead, and therefore he will not choose God. Period. We call this doctrine total depravity. He will not choose God because it's against who he is. The very nature, sinful, I want my own way. Next question, where does faith come from? The answer, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, that no one should boast. No one should boast. That's an important part of this. We saw the same thing in 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1 a couple weeks ago. Peter is writing to who? To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. It is something that was given to them. It is not something that they generated for themselves. Your faith comes as a gift of God's grace. If you could work it up on your own, then it is a work, and your salvation through it is something you earned, in which case it's no longer of grace. Salvation is a gift of God's grace given to those who do not deserve it. That's important. Romans 5, 8, for Christ died for sinners, right? This is how he demonstrated his love for us. Christ died for us while we were yet his enemies, undeserving. That's when he did it. Ephesians 2, 5 is clear on this matter. It was God who, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Nothing in us deserving of it. It is God's action of grace and mercy to us. We find then that the base of salvation is in God and His working. It is not in us and our decisions. We are not free until we come to Christ and make, because He is the one that makes us free and enables us to actually finally choose that which is good and right. Until then, even when we choose what we think is good and right, we'll still have the wrong motives for it. And motives count with God. If salvation, though, is based then in God and not us, then the security of that salvation is based in God and not us. That's how the two flow together. But that brings up another question. If salvation is not based in our choice, then can God legitimately hold us responsible for our sins? The answer is yes. Very simply because he's already clearly commanded what he expects from man and warned about the consequences of not keeping those commands. There are consequences to disobedience. According to Paul's argument in Romans chapter 2, God has even written a basic law in the conscience of all men so that it itself is a law to them which will accuse them in the day of judgment that they have violated their own conscience. So even from that standpoint, there is still a law and they've still violated, they're still in disobedience. It's interesting to note that in Revelation 20, 12, that the dead before the great white throne are judged on what basis? From the things written in the books according to their deeds. The very things that we do are in disobedience to God. He is right to bring judgment upon us. He has given the commands. We have disobeyed them. We know from 2 Peter 3, 9, that God does not wish for him to perish, but to all to come to repentance. Repentance requires you change your mind. You recognize your sinfulness, and you cast yourself on the mercy of God, because you can't do it on your own. It's got to be from him. Acts 17.30, we're actually commanded, all men everywhere to repent. It's a command of God. To refuse to repent is to be disobedient, but isn't that our natural state? 
Isn't that the state we were born in? Isn't that the state we live in until we come to Christ? Is a natural disobedience to God. I want it my way, period. And I'm going to work it to my way one way or the other. I will create a theological system that satisfies me so that God can be in my pocket and then I can earn salvation. We still want it our way. Or we just reject God completely. He's of no consequence. That's becoming very common in our nation. So if to refuse to repent is disobedience, and that's the nature state of mankind, then the question has to be asked of each of us, have you repented yet? Have you been obedient to God to repent? It is proper for him to expect us to obey his commands. Have you changed your mind from sin, self, and Satan to trust and walk with the Savior? And if not, have you at least asked those you know who are godly to pray for you that God will save you? That's another thing you can do. You can't earn your salvation. You can't do this yourself, but you can seek others to pray on your behalf, and you can repent. I also find it interesting in John 6, 28 and 29, this is a section where there's multitudes that have come to Jesus. He's in Capernaum, up in the Sea of Galilee, the northern section. And they come to Jesus and they ask a question, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? This is Jesus' answer in verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. To believe is a work of God. And 1 John 2, or 1 John 3.23 actually tells us it's a command that we believe in him. It's not an option. We are commanded to believe in him. So not to believe also is disobedience. Even the hope that we might have is predicated on belief. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that is he a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, that does not mean that faith, the faith and the belief have to be fully mature, but it does have to be enough that it causes the person to seek after God. How gracious is God in this? Consider Mark 9.24, where Jesus was dealing with a man and, and prodded him, if you believe, this can happen. His cry was, I do believe, help my unbelief. It doesn't have to be a fully mature belief, but it has to be enough there that you're actually seeking him, even if you're going to seek God to begin with. Do you believe that he is? Do you believe he's your order of those who seek him? So salvation is all the work of God, and all the glory for it goes to him. There is nothing in us and nothing we can do to deserve it or to earn it. That's important. It is totally by, by God's grace so that there is nothing man can do to boast concerning it. So it's all of him. However, if you're not saved, you alone bear the responsibility because you've rejected what God has said You've rejected what he's revealed about himself. You're in disobedience to his commands, including those who repent and to believe. Now, there are some things you can do. I already pointed out, you cannot achieve righteousness yourself. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before him. So your best, your best effort is still not going to reach his standard. You can't do that. But you can follow some other commands. For example, over in James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, James gives very clear instruction to those that need to repent. Uh, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. That's repentance. Take seriously your spiritual condition. Turn from it and turn to God. The other thing that you can do is be humble, as Jesus described in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do you get in the kingdom of heaven? It starts right here. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means you take out your pocket. There's nothing in them poor. You have no resources. You have to beg. You can't offer anything. You can't make a deal. Period. You can only beg for mercy. That's how we come to God. In humility. Complete humility. Looking for his grace. 
Now, the good thing, because God's character is merciful and he is gracious, he will save all who believe. Not because of you, but because of him. It glorifies his name. So the, the base of salvation, then, is God, all in God. It is not in us. And because of that, our eternal security is sure. Jesus said in John 6, 17, and then he goes actually through verse 40, continues on there, but he talked about calling his sheep and that all that the Father has given him, he loses none. And no man is able to take them out of his Father's hand. So nothing can attack to remove you from his hand, that security. And since he loses none, that means he's not going to drop you. And you can't jump out. All right? He loses none. So that's our security. Now let's go back to our text. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. What then is this passage talking about? Like almost any passage that ends up with many different interpretations, the solution is simply put it back in its context, and then it becomes very clear. Too often, we just take a verse out of context, and we want to build a theology on one verse. What's the context here? Well, what's the context of 1 Peter chapter 1? Well, the first we find in context is it's God's provision for those who believe. Remember, he's writing to those who received a faith the same as that Peter has. He's writing to believers scattered in northern Turkey. His desire is that grace and peace be increased in them, and it would be because God had already provided for them by his own power everything needed for life and godliness. That's already there. That's verse 3. In addition, because of God's own glory and excellence, he's given us precious and magnificent promises. And these move us to become partakers of the divine nature. They move us to become like Christ in our moral character. And in that happening, we are kept from the world's corruption. We become like Christ, less like the world. How? He's given us precious and magnificent promises as we believe those things and put them in our life, instill that in our life, walk in those promises, we're changed. That's the context. In addition to that, the believer, as we saw last week, is to supply to that faith seven components of a godly life. God has done his part, but there's a part we're supposed to do in pursuing godliness. And he explains that. Seven different components. We start with faith. That's in who God is, what he's like, his character, his nature. I can trust him. And then to that is added moral excellence. Moral excellence is fulfilling the very purpose for which we are created, which is really essentially is living for God's glory. Second is the knowledge. The knowledge here is specifics. The knowledge of God, his nature, his attributes, his will. Third is the self-control. This is subjecting oneself to God and being submissive to his will instead of pursuing your own will. The perseverance is what is needed to endure patiently all the stuff that comes up because we live in a sin-cursed world. Anybody notice that? Oh, yeah. Every day, that's right, every day something breaks. At my house, I never get one project done before two more things break. My desk, we know it's there somewhere. We do believe it's there because things are up on top of it. They're not on the floor. They're elevated. Someone else has a desk like mine, huh, Jacob? Oh, someone in the house has one like that? Praise the Lord. I like it when someone is like-minded with me. But we're living in a sin-cursed world. How do we even keep up with it? We need perseverance. The godliness here, that which means to live life completely for God with joy. With joy. There's a joy in living for God. The brotherly kindness, that commitment, affection which exists between believers because we have a common relationship with Christ. And then the last one, love, is agape love. This is that sacrificial love that chooses the object of its um, desire and sacrifices itself for the good of that, that person. That's agape love. That's the love God has for us, the love we're commanded to have for one another. And each of these things are to be added 
to our lives, to our faith. Now, each of these is actually added by faith or developed by faith, and each one in turn strengthens all the other ones and strengthens our faith too. So it just keeps building itself up. To what purpose? To maturity, to become a characteristic where we become useful and fruitful in the cause of Christ. Now, that just makes sense. The more I'm like Christ, the more I'll be useful and fruitful for his cause. And that's what these things do. I'm becoming more like him. Now, if they're not true, if they're not present, Peter says you're blind, you're myopic, nearsighted, you're forgetting what Christ has done for you, the purification that he has given you. You've forgotten that and you've left it behind. That's the context. Now, with that as the context, we go on to verse 10 and 11 to see what he means by making diligent diligent and be, make it certain of our calling. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So again, we have a command. It's not a request. It's a command. So in view of what he's just said, also be diligent to make sure of your calling and your choosing. Well, what are the words used here? Diligence, this is the same word we saw back in verse 5. Spodadzo. I practiced that this morning. I couldn't get it out. Interesting word. It means to earnest effort, exertion of oneself, endeavoring. The next is making certain or make sure. It is to provide a guarantee. That's the idea behind this. The word used for God's calling here, klesis, refers to his effectual calling and salvation, which we might refer really to as his irrevocable call. That's actually how it's translated over in Romans 11.29. Irrevocable call. In fact, you might even call this a royal command rather than invitation. That's his calling. The term, <clears throat> the term for choosing here, eklagein, is the noun form for election. It is to be picked out, is to be selected. And when God chooses, you can be sure that his choice is secure. It is sure. The verb form of this is used over in 1 Corinthians 1, 27, 28, describes God's choosing of his people. And who did he choose? Folks, us. That who are foolish and weak and base and that which is despised by the world to be his people. Why? So that there is no boasting on anybody's part, but all glory goes to himself. Same root word there. So Peter's call here is for those who have a faith like his, remember that's back to verse 1, that's who he's writing to, to make even more of an earnest effort to provide a guarantee of their salvation by practicing the seven qualities he mentioned earlier. Why? Because those who practice these things will not stumble. They will not stumble. The word there for stumble, tayo, means to uh, strike your foot against a stone and hence to stumble and to fall. Now, it would be stretching the meaning of this word, especially in this context, for this to mean that the person loses their saving grace and is no longer saved. If Peter meant that, there are several other words he could have used. One of them, ephistomy, is used several places, like Luke 18, 13, 1 Timothy 4, 1, to describe those who have fallen away from what they claim they believe. They've rejected it. We often use the word apostate to describe those kinds of folks. They are not of us. They've left us because they've rejected what they've claimed to believe earlier. So in the immediate context here, Peter is comparing those with, who are doing this, they're following it, they're useful, they're fruitful, and he's comparing that with those who are not useful, not fruitful, those who are blind, myopic, nearsighted, and interestingly, as he put it, forgotten their purification from their former sins. It doesn't say they were not purified. It's but that they have forgotten what has been done for them. That's the comparison in the, in the context of the, the uh, chapter here. In addition, the grammar structure, 
structure on this one is used in Ephesians 5.16 where it says, those who walk in the Spirit cannot fulfill the desires of the flesh. So here it's those who practice these seven qualities in their lives cannot stumble. That's what's being emphasized. You can't stumble if you're doing this. That's his encouragement. Keep doing this, and you won't fall back into the things you've done before. It's not a danger of losing salvation. It's only of falling into sin if you're not diligent to supply these seven moral qualities to your faith. If you're not doing that, you will stumble, and you're going to struggle with sin. But if you're doing this, you're not going to stumble and fall. That's the passage. That's what he's talking about. So if what Peter says in verses 5 through 8 are true, these seven qualities, and they are, then there's an assurance of our entrance in the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we display this kind of godly character, we can be sure we've been converted, and one day we are going to be in heaven with our Lord. Now Peter says here one other thing, verse 11, that describes what he's talking about. He says our entrance will be abundantly supplied. The word supplied is the same one we saw back in verse 5 last week. It is the way that a rich patron would supply for a high civic event. It is overabundantly supplied. It is lavish. In fact, the phrase is used in describing the welcome given to Olympic uh, winners when they got home in the ancient world. A lavish production of welcoming these, these heroes home. We're to be earnest to supply these qualities in our lives. God then even more so supplies our entrance into heaven. This is the difference between going to heaven and it's a celebration and those who are saved, but if by fire. They're there, but none of the, the works that they have done come with them to give additional praise to God. That's the difference. That's what Peter's talking about. No wonder Peter desires the people to live a godly life and that grace and peace is going to be increased in those who are doing this. So let me summarize this then. What has God done? Everything we need. Absolutely everything we need. What does God want? He wants you to be useful and fruitful. What do we lack? Commitment to obedience. We have myopic faith. We don't see the big picture. We're only looking at our own little lives. What must we do? We need to make diligent to make certain these seven qualities are part of our life. God will be faithful to do his part. He will supply our interest to heaven even to a lavish extent as we do this. Now let me wrap all this up dealing with the subject of assurance of salvation. In fact, I got an email last week. A lady was asking about that. How can I know that I'm saved? And her experience really wasn't much different than mine growing up. I came to Christ when I was a young boy, six years old. I do not know the date. I know it was warm when I went forward in the church and went to talk to the pastor. I know he nailed me for sin. He had said we all sinned before we got to church. I figured he'd talk to my mom. He knew the jig was up. I was guilty. And at that point, I realized that Christ didn't die for sinners, plural, everybody. It also meant he died for me personally because I was a sinner. So I understood that. I know it was a warm day, but hey, it's Southern California. <laughs> it can be warm any time of year. That doesn't tell you a whole lot. And over the years, there were different times I had crisis of faith. I would wonder what happened. In junior high school, I read a book on, uh, it was one of these, is what is it going to be like on earth during the tribulation period? Well, you know what? It's a pretty scary thing, especially for junior higher. And I was scared. What if I'm left behind? Well, it's a crisis of faith. Do I really believe this or not? Uh, first year of high school, we had this evangelist, quote-unquote, guy come through, and he said, if you could not name the day and the hour you're saved, you're not saved. I was six, it was warm. I'm not saved. Well, it took me about two months in talking to people to figure out this guy was a nut, and he had no basis in Scripture to make such a claim, and they should have kicked him out rather than giving him a week at church. They really should have. It was a very bad thing to say, and he had absolutely no scriptural basis for it. He only had his own story. Paul knew when he was saved, but look at the scriptures. When was Timothy saved? Don't know. Doesn't say anything about it. All Paul says is you grew in faith under the teaching of your grandmother and mother, and you came to faith. You may not know the day and hour. 
then in uh, college we were doing a massive evangelism campaign and you're how do you share the gospel with someone that was another crisis of faith i wonder did i really do this did i really make this certain and sure all right why were all these doubts why is this lady having a doubt that wrote to me she's prayed three times over the course of the years to be saved and not sure if she is yet well it comes down to where our assurances come from the very first assurance we have of salvation comes from a changed life this is where the struggle always erupts and that's really what peter's been talking about here in this passage if your life is marked by living for god guess what you don't struggle a whole lot with knowing you're saved or not do you if you know you're living for christ and there's no outward flagrant sin and whatever sins are there you're quickly confessing there's no problem here you don't doubt your salvation not at all but what happens when there's some sin it gets a root in you and you know you're not living the way you should or the preacher comes and he starts beating on you because you're not praying five hours a day because we know all godly people pray five hours a day don't they you don't pray five hours a day oh oh what kind of ungodly people am i with don't you know you're supposed to be praising praying without ceasing i was cutting it down by 19 hours of course the context there is always a mindset of prayer always willing to go to prayer at any time any way all right we know it's not praying five times a day and you're not more godly because you spend more hours than somebody else all right but preachers can do that they can make you very guilty point out something and you know you're probably not where you really want to be or wish you could be and so suddenly it starts compounding on you we also have an adversary and our adversary one of his names is the accuser of the brethren and as the accuser of brethren any kind of little sin that gets in there he's going to say how can you be a christian look what you did look at the thing you just watched on tv or you went to a movie you know a good christian wouldn't do that what kind of music are you listening to a good christian wouldn't listen to that kind of stuff yuck jesus is not happy with you all right how could you get upset and raise your voice at your lovely wife the saints in your life and you got mad at her you can't be a christian the anger of God does not achieve the righteousness of God, so how can you be of God? You get my point? Yeah, we've all been there. And ladies, I know it goes the other way too. Okay. But we start feeling guilty. And when our life isn't the way we're supposed to be, all these accusations start pulling us down. Now, there should be a change in life, shouldn't there? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, a new creature, old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And we are different than we were, but sometimes we forget that we're not where we want to be. We want to be over there. We want to be like Christ in heaven, but we're still back over here. But praise God, if you go back and look a little bit, you know you're not back where you were. There's been progress. Look for the progress and hang around people that encourage you towards that progress. Maybe point out is, hey, you're, you're making progress. You're doing okay keep going we want a cheering section here not a berating section we also know that first john 2 3 and 6 tells us that there's going to be a change it says this by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments the one who says i have come to know him does not keep his commandments is a liar the truth is not in him but whoever keeps his word in him the love of god has truly been perfected by this we know that we are in him the one who says he abides in him ought himself walk in the same manner as he walked now that's a not to remember first john 1 9 is written to christians not to the unbelieving that's the context if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all sins forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness that's the christians he tells us we're going to sin in fact we say we have no sin we're calling god a liar but what should mark our life is increasing commitment to keep his commandments that should be there but what about these who make a profession of faith and they're not living for christ they're not doing what they should be doing well there's several possibilities the first one is this ignorance and immaturity paul wrote to the corinthians first corinthians chapter 3 that they were yet fleshy they were yet carnal i should be able to feed you meat and i'm got to give you milk you haven't grown yet why not you're not where you're supposed to be do you not realize that the whole point of making a disciple is right here we're going baptizing and teaching to obey all things whichever he's commanded that's the rest of our life 
We have people with different gifts coming alongside us, helping us to mature, to become like him. So a lot of times when we're in sin, ignorance, I don't know what the word of God says, or two, I'm just immature. I haven't figured out how to put this into practice yet. So that's one reason there are those who make a profession of faith and they're not walking as they should. Immaturity, ignorance. Second one is they could be what Peter's talking about here. They're blind, they're short-sighted, they fall into sin. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 tells us that those who are spiritual need to come alongside those who have stumbled, been encumbered with sin, and help them through it. And that happens to us as well. We have our bad days, we have our, well, we have our bad weeks sometimes, maybe months, but we get struggling with something and it gets a grip on us. We need someone to come alongside and help us out of it. That's why we're part of a body. That's why being a hermit Christian doesn't work. You fall in the pit, you're stuck. I want the body around me. I want someone to give me a rope. Throw down a ladder. Do something. Get me out of this pit. We help each other with that. So that's a possibility, what Peter's talking about. Become blind, short-sighted. I can only see what's in front of me, and I've forgotten what Christ has done for me. That he has purified me, and because he's purified me, I can live a different way. But there's another possibility. That lack of change could be they have misunderstood the gospel itself. They've got the wrong Jesus. They've got a different Jesus than the one in Scripture. They've got a Jesus that's weak. He's not God himself. It could be the Jesus of the Mormon, the Jesus of the Jehovah Witness, the Jesus of most of the cults, or a Jesus of your own creation. You don't understand the gospel. That's why you can't live for Christ. You've got the wrong Christ. Or you're placing your trust in something other than Christ. A lot of people are placing their trust in something that's not Christ. Very common in the churches I grew up in was as they were trusting, they made a profession of faith, they prayed the prayer with evangelists, they walked the aisle to the altar. We don't have an altar, so we can't do that here. But they made the altar call. Okay, they did it. They did. Well, what are they trusting? Are they trusting Christ or themselves? Trust themselves, it affects how you live. I need to trust Christ. They have a misunderstanding of the gospel. That's a possibility. Paul wrote to these kinds of folks in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He said, test yourselves to see if you are the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail the test? How tragic to think you're a Christian only to find out too late that you were not because you've got the, a trust in the wrong thing or the wrong Jesus. There's nothing wrong with having doubts. Doubts are great if you work through them because when you work through them, you have a confidence, a conviction that is your own, not somebody else's. We want to work through doubts, not ignore them. One final possibility, they could be apostate. 1 John 2.19 talks about those who have left us because they were not of us. They become contrary to their profession of faith. They become antagonistic even to Christianity. I've met many people like that. At one time, they had some sort of profession of faith, but now they're antagonistic to the gospel. Now, at this point, I want to give a strong caution. It's not my job or your job to determine one way or the other, either confirm or deny whether someone's saved or not. We can't know. Why? First of all, salvation is between the individual and God, and only God knows the true state of the person. There are plenty of people that live an outwardly conformed life. They look like they're solid Christians. They have a good godly life, quote-unquote. But all they're meeting is a societal standard or their family standard, and neither of those standards means anything about holiness or righteousness. So just because someone lives a nice life doesn't mean they're actually saved. And you have the opposite, as we already pointed out, of Christians who stumble in sin, and they're not walking the way they should, but they belong to Christ. They're his. And he's going to work on them. And he will work on us. Praise God when he chastens us. Helps us know we belong to him. Well, what do you do with someone who makes a profession of faith and they live in a sinful manner? Well, we've gone over this before. It's Matthew 18, isn't it? Those are steps Jesus told us to use when this situation arises. You see someone stuck in sin, you go to them individually. Why? Because you're caring, you're concerned for them, and you're concerned for the glory of God. You point out their sin. 
Hopefully you win them back. If you don't, you take two or three others. Why? To establish truth. You may just be misunderstanding. Or maybe you're applying your personal standard on them, which isn't necessarily righteousness. Two or three establish the truth. They also need then to encourage the one who's in sin to come out of it. And they're there to help them come out of it. That's the whole point, is to bring about reconciliation. If they still won't listen, then you tell the whole church. The whole church gets involved in praying for them and admonishing them and encouraging them to walk in righteousness. If after all that, they still won't change from their sin, then the church treats them as a Gentile and tax gatherer. At that point, you say, is there's not the evidence to back up your claim. Whether you're saved or not, only God knows. But we cannot accept your profession of faith because there's nothing to back it up. When you repent, we can accept it again. But at this point, no. So until then, we're going to keep evangelizing you. This is the gospel you need to repent. You have to treat them as a non-Christian. It's only after all those things. That's what Jesus told us to do. Now, the second assurance of salvation is the Holy Spirit within us. Romans 8, 16 tells the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And yes, that's mystical. No, it's not a hard, fast thing that, you know, there's, it's concrete. It's a mystical thing within you. And you've all experienced if you're a Christian with this, you just have this sense, I know I belong to God. Circumstances could be terrible, but you know you belong to God. That's the spirit bearing witness with your spirit. You sense it as well. You walk into a room where you don't necessarily know people, but you sense somebody over here is just an affinity just like that. You start talking to find out they're a believer. This is the spirit bearing witness back and forth. These belong to me. Again, subjective, but true. And again, I'll point out that part of this witness of the Spirit is guilt. Praise God when you're guilty. Because that's the Spirit telling you, even if you can't cite the chapter and verse, something's wrong. This is contrary to me. If you continue in that, the Spirit will chasten you, Hebrews chapter 12. Those who feel guilt have the possibility of repentance. They're in a good position. Those who are chastened by God are in a good position. It means they belong to him. The Lord chastens all whom he loves. It is those who do not have guilt and are not chastened that are in danger. They're in grave danger because they could be illegitimate. False profession, a misunderstanding, a false gospel they've come to believe. So that's the second assurance. The witness of the Holy Spirit. But remember, the longer you continue in sin, the more you grieve the Holy Spirit. The more you grieve the Holy Spirit, the less this is going to be in your life. The third one, and the, actually, it's actually the primary assurance, I just put it third in the list, but it's actually the primary one. It's God's promises. It all boils down to that. Salvation is God's work. It's based on Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. It's regeneration that comes through the Holy Spirit. And all these things we know because God has revealed them in his word. It's in the scriptures. The question we have to ask ourselves then is, do we believe what it says? Have we placed our trust in Christ as it commands? Do we live the faith that is commanded in there, subjecting ourselves to being obedient to it? Here's just a few of the promises that are in Scripture. John, chapter 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, so it isn't your genealogy, not of the will of the flesh, so it's not up to you. Not of the will of man, it's not up to somebody else, but of God. God is at work. How about John three sixteen through 18? Most of you know John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But 17 and 18 are important too. God did not send the son of the world to judge the world, but the, judge, the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. How about John 5, 24? Truly, truly, this is again Jesus speaking, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into condemnation, but is passed out of death into life. That's his promise. That's what he said. Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That's a promise. 1 John chapter 5, 10 through 13, my favorite passage to go with those who are in Catholicism. 
Because you can ask a Catholic, Are you, do you know you're going to go to heaven? They must, if they know Catholicism, say no. Because it's an anathema to a Catholic, Catholic doctrine, to say you know you're going to heaven. But this verse says you can know. 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. That is a sure promise, and it does boil down to this, doesn't it? Do you have the Son or not? Your assurance of salvation is dependent upon the promises of God. You either believe them and trust God, and you're saved, or you don't. If you believe them and trust God, you have the Son. You have the Son, you have the life. If you don't believe them, you don't have the Son, you do not have the life. It actually is that simple. But if you don't have the Son, you can have Him even today. How? Believe God's promises. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Let me close by reading to you the passage we actually read earlier because it's probably the strongest statement we have in Scripture of the assurance of our salvation. Nothing can separate us from God. And that's why I wanted to have it read through twice today. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Paul is so certain of this that he states something that's in the future as a present reality. You're not glorified yet, neither am I. But he states it, so certain, he states it as a present. He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justified. Just as is written, for thy sake we were being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. All right, that's his... His statement here, yes, there's going to be tough things in your life. Those don't separate us from the love of God. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or principalities, or things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's pretty all-inclusive. That's everything. I cannot be more secure than that, and I hope that's true for you. If it isn't, then talk with myself, talk with our church leaders, because it can be. You can have a confidence and assurance of where you belong and what your future destiny will be, because it comes from God, not us.